This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Food waste in the United States contributes more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere than the entire airline industry. One small thing you and I can do today is hurry up and eat the almost expired yogurt or cheese languishing in your fridge and throw those wilted veggies into a stir fry instead of throwing them in the trash can. Caroline Cotto is the co-founder of a company tackling one piece of the food waste problem. They take the byproducts from companies that make soy milk and turn those byproducts into something else edible. The company is called Renewal Mill, and Caroline Cotto is on the line. Hi, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Can you explain, first of all, how throwing food away contributes to greenhouse gas emissions? Absolutely. So when you throw away food, you're not only wasting all the resources that went into growing it, but you're also having it end up in a landfill where it decomposes and releases harmful greenhouse gas emissions. And both of those really contribute to the overall kind of carbon footprint of food waste. So um, in our case, you know, when you throw away the soybean pulp left over when you make soy milk or the oat pulp left over when you make oat milk, Um, You're wasting sort of all of the land, all of the water, all the fertilizer that went into growing that food that ends up in the trash. Um, And then, yeah, as it sits in landfill, it, you know, breaks down and all of it can't break down quickly enough. And in that process, it's releasing um, harmful greenhouse gases. Where is most of the food waste happening in the United States? Is it is it situations like you're describing where there's pulp left over after somebody makes soy milk? Is it more like the industrial level of, you know, kind of like byproducts that's where most of the waste is happening? Um, Actually, I think, you know, almost 40% of food waste is still happening at the consumer level. So that's us in our homes, um, Mm. throwing away things and and overbuying or letting things, like you said, languish in your fridge. Um, But there is food waste happening at every part of the supply chain. So that's ugly produce left on fields that, you know, isn't up to grocery store standards. And so farmers, it's easier to just let it stay there and rot rather than harvest it. Um, Companies like Imperfect Foods are really focused on trying to solve that problem. There's food waste happening where we work at the manufacturing level. So byproducts where, um, you know, you're only using a subset of the input that comes into the factory and letting the rest of that go out as a byproduct when in fact there are ways to um, keep that in the supply chain. Um, And then there's food waste happening at the food service level where uh, companies are producing buffets or food for the day that they're not able to sell um, and they're not able to to donate that either. And so they're throwing that away. So it really is at every level. Mm. What is it that you do exactly with the soy pulp (laughs) once the beans have been (laughs) juiced for their milk? Yeah, actually juicing is the perfect word there. So we got our start because my co-founder had founded a juice company previously Mm. and was appalled at the amount of fruit and vegetable pulp left over through the juicing process. And then we met the owner of a tofu factory. um, And the first step of making tofu is making soy milk. And you can think of it as uh, juicing soybeans, basically, and siphoning off that liquid to become the soy milk. And what's left over is, is pulp. Um, And normally that would just be trucked away to landfill, but it's actually full of fiber and protein and really valuable nutrition. So what we do is we dehydrate it and mill it to make it shelf stable and turn it into a flour, a gluten-free flour that you can use in all sorts of delicious baked goods or tortillas or vegan meats and and things like that. And we do this process for a variety of plant-based milk. So not only soy milk, but oat milk, as I mentioned. So it comes to you from the tofu factory or the soy milk factory as what, like a sludge or (laughs) like a milky goo? Like what is it exactly when you get it? Yeah, sludge is definitely not the right word. So just to be super clear, we are, um, this is a very food safe product. It's super clean. Um, Basically, it looks kind of like oatmeal, 
uh, a little bit less wet. So you can kind of pick it up with your hands and if you could kind of like form it into a little snowball if you wanted. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a wet pulp. Um, it is about uh, 80% moisture. And what we're doing is taking all of that moisture out. So it becomes shelf stable and then um, milling it down to the grain size of a traditional all-purpose flour. So when you see it on shelf, it literally looks like any other flour you've, you've previously seen. It's neutral in color, so it's very light and white. Um, it's neutral in flavor, and um, it, it's, it's packed with all of that nutrition. And how would I use that flour? What Soy flour, I guess, wh- whatever you call it. Yeah, it's, um, so it's called okara flour. Um, okara is actually a traditional Japanese word for the pulp leftover when you mm. make soy milk. Um, and it's, and is this uh, something oh, that, that the Japanese actually do that what you're doing is something that's kind of traditional in Japanese food culture? Um, at, at the household level. Yeah. And, mm. and I mean, at the manufacturing level as well, but if you made soy milk at home, which is a very normal thing to do in a country like Japan, you would never throw away the pulp. You would use it in things like, um, okonomiyaki, which is a savory Japanese pancake dish or you might saute it with vegetables to create a savory side dish, mm. or you might use it in a sweet baked bread, like a, like a pound cake. Mm. Um, but they also do some of this at the manufacturing level. And in Japan, an uh, ingredient like okara is recognized as a health superfood. So there's peer reviewed studies on its health benefits, especially for cardiac health, weight maintenance, and um, muscle recovery. It's got but- fiber in it. Is it also a protein source? It is. Yeah. So it's about um, 20% protein and that is a complete protein because it's coming from a legume. Okay. And so you make the flour and then you just sell it as flour and hopefully somebody like me figures out how to use it in baking. (laughs) Yeah. So we we do uh, a bit of both. We sell it to other companies that want to use these superfood ingredients in their own products. So right now we're selling to some companies using it in grain-free chips, grain-free tortillas, Hmm. cookies, baby food. And then we also use some of it in our own products. So we do sell it um, just for retail. So you could buy a bag of this Okara flour yourself. Um, It is a one-to-one substitute for coconut flour. So it's keto friendly. And we're Mm. seeing a lot of people using it um, in keto baking in their own homes. Um, To make it a little bit easier for the home cook, we've also used it to create a one-to-one gluten-free baking blend. So that means you can just take a cup of that flour and replace a cup of all-purpose flour in your favorite Um, product or your favorite recipe and that will make it gluten-free and then we also take it one step easier and make baking mixes with it Mm. so you just add oil and water to those baking mixes we sell a dark chocolate brownie mix a sugar cookie mix and um, a oat chocolate chip cookie mix Mm. and those kind of feature these hero ingredients but are super easy to use and super delicious so caroline cotto the if the goal, though, is to um, do what's best for the environment, is all of the energy and resources required to collect the pulp and bring it to your location and to heat it and dry it and then grind it up and then package it and sell it? Like, in the end, is that better for the environment than just sending it to the landfill? It is actually. And we, you know, do something called a life cycle analysis or an LCA to, to make sure that we have the, the data to back that up. Um, and just to clarify, we don't actually transport this material to a centralized processing facility. We process it on site where the byproducts are being produced hmm. so that we're eliminating that carbon footprint of having to transport heavy wet byproducts. Mm. So the soy um, milk company lets you let you set up like a dehydrating station there on site. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, when you when you do the life cycle assessment of of all of the energy that goes into producing this, it is still less than um, having it go to landfill, which is super exciting. And we also go a step further and carbon offset our own production so that these products are carbon neutral. Okay. So through the carbon offset process where you can like pay somebody else to, <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to, to emit less carbon kind of a thing. Yeah. So that's, um, I mean, they automatically have a lower carbon footprint by the nature of being upcycled. And that's just an additional step that we're taking. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about how widespread this is. First of all, are there really that many sort of safe for human consumption food byproducts that 
that you could do this kind of thing with? Definitely. There's billions of pounds of safe byproducts that are being thrown away every year in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, if you think about things like remnants left over from baby carrots when you go to the store, like all of that is food safe and has been traditionally thrown away um, or juicing. Because they make baby that. carrots by just like shaving down regular size carrots, right? That's correct. Which, yep. which was shocking to me when I learned that. I'm like, why would they do that? Waste all that carrot. Okay. So that seems yeah. like a pretty obvious one. They've got all these like carrot shards that, yeah. um, and they just get thrown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, traditionally, they've either been thrown away to landfill, um, or if you're lucky enough to live within proximity of a farmer that will take them for animal feed. Mm. Um, but that is a really inconsistent offtake solution. Um, so yeah, traditionally landfill, um, things like spent grain from beer brewing, the beer industry produces millions and millions of pounds of the spent grain left over after you, you brew the beer. And that can be collected in a food safe manner as well and turned into flour similarly to what we do. Um, even things that people don't think about like the water squeezed out of fruit when you create like dehydrated fruit that can be captured and you know carbonated into a delicious sparkling beverage. So there's so many places across the food supply chain where we're just yeah processing out a lot of fiber and protein and um, nutrition that can be captured. Now, you're president of the board of directors for the Upcycled Food Association, Caroline Cotto. Who are the businesses primarily doing this kind of thing right now? You know, it started with a bunch of smaller startup companies that were focused on this. But over the last 18 months, we've seen a lot of larger companies also creating new products in the upcycled category and kind of reaffirming their commitments to sustainability and food waste reduction. So, um, you know, we have almost 200 members at this point, including Dole Foods, Mondelez, um, and, you know, big companies that have released upcycled products on the market. Um, and we have also recently created an upcycled certification mm. so that now products can be certified upcycled the way that they'd be certified organic or certified non-GMO. Oh. And those companies are also applying. Okay. Yeah. So, so talk to me about the certification because I could see this just being yet one more way for food companies to take advantage of people who are prone to buying, um, you know, trendy stuff that says organic on it or something like that. So, so what do you have to do in order to actually get the official upcycled label on a product? Yeah, avoiding greenwashing, which is kind of the term for what you're describing as just slapping the latest and greatest on the front is really important to us. Um, and so in order to achieve the certification, there's actually two pathways at the moment. So either 10% um, of the product is made of upcycled material or the sale of that product diverts a certain threshold of food waste over a certain period of time. So for example, um, if you sell less than you know, $2 million in sales over the first year of your product on the market, you need to divert more than um, you know, a certain threshold of food waste. Mm. And I think it's, it doesn't, it's, you know, for consumers, it's really important to understand that sometimes you're making a huge dent in food waste, but that final product can only be used in a certain percentage to make a delicious product. So things like sweeteners, for example, you might be diverting a ton of food waste, but that, you know, a sweetener is never going to be a hundred percent of a final product. So that's kind of why there's that different, uh, threshold for mm. um, percentage inclusion. Uh, okay. So in the case of your flour, it's, it's a hundred percent upcycled, right? That's because, correct. because yep. it's just only the soy pulp that gets turned into the flour. But what would be an example of something that includes a little bit of upcycled stuff, but also a lot of other stuff that's not upcycled? So our baking mixes include our upcycled flour as well as upcycled pea starch and upcycled sweeteners. But then um, in order to make a delicious product, we also include some other organic but not upcycled ingredients, things like um, baking powder and some other other flours and starches. So where do you get an upcycled sweetener from? Ooh, good question. Um, one of my favorites right now is from cacao fruit. So when you make chocolate, you're actually only using a very small part of that product. Um, and so the cacao fruit is really sweet, 
um, and can be kind of condensed down and boiled down into a either liquid or um, kind of sugar format sweetener that you can use in all sorts of different products. That's so weird because cocoa is bitter. I, I, yeah. I mean, why would they take the, if it's naturally sweet, why would they take it out so then we could re-sweeten it? That's strange. Yeah, like cocoa has definitely uh, currently often been made just from the cacao nibs. Mm. Um, but if you use the whole fruit, actually Berry Calibit, which is one of the largest chocolate companies in the world, um, is creating an upcycled chocolate that uses the sweetener from the cacao fruit as the sweetener in their chocolate bar. Mm. Um, so I think company, the tide is turning and people are kind of trying to work back and say, oh, okay, like, yeah, why weren't we using that? What, yeah. How can we be, um, you know, like kind of get back to basics and be more circular in the way that we're thinking about how we produce our food? Our, if, if, if a lot of times the, the plant waste is, is um, it's not being upcycled for humans, but it's being sent to feed animals. Do you consider that waste or lost? As long as it's not going to the landfill, it seems like it's going to good use. (laughs) Yeah. So the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has um, what they call a hierarchy of use when it comes to these sorts of materials. It's kind of an inverted triangle. Um, And at the top, you know, is source reduction. So the most important thing we can do is prevent waste from happening in the first place. The next thing we can do is try to keep it in the human supply chain. And then the second thing is keeping it in the animal supply chain and then next, you know, compost and um, digestion and things like that all the way down to landfill, which is obviously the worst use. Mm. So um, anytime you move something up that inverted pyramid towards the top, we're considering that upcycling. So if you, if it was going to animal feed and now it's going to human feed, that's upcycled. Um, But yeah, at our, at Renewal Mill, um, our goal is really to try to to keep as much of it as possible in feeding humans. For this to catch on widely, what kind of uh, public education do you think will be required to convince customers that, you know, I mean, upcycle is a nice buzzy sort of, it sounds like recycle and it's up instead of down. <laughs> so, of course, you know, it's a it's a great word to try to, um, you know, uh, give a sparkle to this idea, which is, but if you were to tell people, yeah, this is made from the leftovers of soy milk, do you think that would be less attractive? And, and what do you think will be the, the challenge in sort of convincing a lot of people that eating byproducts is actually good? Yeah, I mean, I think everything comes down to storytelling and, and how you do it, right? Um, so to your point, like recycling, you have to actually break something down into its component parts in order to reuse it. With upcycling, you don't need to break something down into component parts. You're kind of using it as is and elevating it to higher use. Mm-hmm. So there is a distinct difference between those terms. Also, Drexel University has done a lot of research on what term resonates most with consumers about how to talk about this. Like people were using the terms like reclaimed food or reharvested food (laughs) and um, upcycled is the term that resonates most according to research. And that's why we've really kind of doubled down on that with the association and why the certification is so important because we wanna do what things like non-GMO project verification have done for consumer education for upcycled food. So we want people to say, when I purchase upcycled food, I understand that I'm helping reduce food waste, which is one of the largest drivers of climate change. And so therefore, when I reduce food waste, I'm helping fight climate change and make it a very clear linear thought process for folks. Can I actually find foods that have an upcycled like certification on it today? Yeah, so uh, very exciting. The first 10 companies in the world that achieve certification were released in um, mid-June. So hopefully you'll start seeing those logos on more and more packages. Um, and now that, that program is open for open enrollment. So any food company in the world that's using upcycled materials can apply to have their products certified. Um, but starting this fall, you should see it in some definitely some mainstream grocery stores as well as all renewal mill products. Should I expect to pay more for something that's been upcycled, just like I, ex- I expect to pay more for something that's organic? Not necessarily. I think, you know, the goal is really to keep all of this you know, nutrition, I keep saying in, in the supply chain. And so um, sometimes these products are more expensive, but you know, they, they don't have to be necessarily, we're just trying to create delicious, sustainable products um, within different categories. If the real opportunity, though, in, to, to make like a real dent would be to get 
like a chip maker, <laughs> you know, to start using upcycled ingredients in their chips. Um, does cost become an issue there? Is it is it more expensive for them to use upcycled ingredients than it is just to buy the regular corn or flour and have the leftovers? Yeah, again, not necessarily. I think the goal is for there to be price parity so that the right choice is the easy choice when it comes to choosing sustainable. Um, but we will clarify that like there is a processing, you know, like we have to produce these ingredients and that is not a cost free. So I think there's this idea that, you know, you're getting a byproduct, it must be cheaper. But actually, there's a lot of care that goes into making sure it's food safe, that making sure mm -hmm. that it's, you know, processed in a way that's you know, food safe and healthy and doing, you know, doing good for that ingredient. So yeah. um the, I think, yeah, uh, to the, your point, no. Okay. The, the ideal scenario, though, it seems like if, if our goal is to make a dent in, you know, in the in the carbon footprint um, and the waste stream, it seems like the ideal scenario would be to have a large food manufacturer taking their byproducts and upcycling them in-house to create a new revenue stream for themselves, right? Kind of like where, you know, people will collect their, their, like their recite their trash and then, and then make money off of recycling it. Do, do you see any large food companies actually, you know, doing this, embarking on trying to like be zero waste when it comes to their production? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I mentioned, that company, Berry Calibut is a chocolate company, very focused on using the cacao fruit to sweeten their own chocolate. Mm. Um, there are a lot of other companies that are, are doing similar things or partnering with companies like ours in order to um, help them, you know, because a lot of the time these byproduct streams are outside of the the product categories of their use. To so they selling. may not they may not have the milling equipment on site, for example, at the soy protein, at the soy milk. Exactly. Company. Yep. Yeah. So by partnering with us, we're able to help them. And some of the companies we work with want to use these ingredients in their own products and others are content to have us be the complete offtake solution. And then we're able to sell it to people who do use flour in their products and educate them. Caroline Cotto is the COO and co-founder of Renewal Mill and president of the board of directors for the Upcycled Food Association. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you having me on. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. I'm Julie Rose. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. Regina Mitchell was a trained chef who had done internships with Julia Child and Emeril Lagasse when she suddenly lost her eyesight about 10 years ago. A blindness brought an end to her days in the kitchen for a time. How could she chop vegetables safely or know when a cake was perfectly golden brown and ready to come out of the oven? But Regina Mitchell found her way back to cooking and now teaches a popular Zoom class through the nonprofit Blind Connect. Chef Mitchell, welcome. Thanks for taking time today. Wow, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Julie. I really appreciate this time. Well, it's great to have you with us. What was the first thing you cooked when you got up the courage to go back into the kitchen after you went blind? Believe it or not, it was a Brazilian fish stew. <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds kind of complicated. Okay. I mean, it wasn't a grilled cheese sandwich, apparently. <laughs> it was not. I, when I go it, I'm going to go hard. <laughs> so it was uh, called mukeko, and it's a, brilliant, uh, a Brazilian fish stew that involved lots of chopping and cutting and organizing and several cooking methods. So I wanted to make sure that all of those skills were sharpened. Uh, but I mean, that's a lot to just, you know, march in there. But but you learned to do all of those things with your sight. And then suddenly you were having to do them without that sight. What was the first sort of big challenge that you realized you were going to have to maybe relearn a new skill? Chopping. Mm. Yes. Cutting uh, my vegetables, using my knife. Uh, my knives are, I call them my girlfriends and they, um, you know, it was, it, it was challenging um, because that's one of the things we learn. 
How do you do it, though? How do you, how do you cut? Let's say you're going to chop up a carrot. Yes. But you can't see it. So you're going to do it right. by feel, but you don't want to chop your finger off while you're chopping the carrot. How do you do right. it? Well, well, first of all, I wouldn't have someone to chop a carrot first. I would have them to do maybe a something softer, mm-hmm. say a mushroom, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, something that's more stable. But to cut a carrot, you have to, because it rolls around, you have to slice just a teeny bit off of the length of it. That way it gives you that flat base. Mm. And then from there, you just go around and trim the ends. And then you want to cut it in half. The cut side is what you place down, which is going to give you stability on your cutting board. And then from there, you have two pieces. And now you want to put it, make it into four pieces. So you just want to keep halving it until you get to where you want it to be, whether you want to have a Julian cut or whether you want to have a small dice. So first of all, you need to trim off that bottom to give yourself a flat, safe bottom and then half it throughout the carrot. You are really good at explaining something like that very clearly and in detail. I could picture every single step along the way. Was that a skill you also had to develop, realizing that, you know, your your class, the, the class that you teach, a lot of them can't see you on the video? No, they can't. No, they can't. But you know what? With intuitive cooking, which I sort of developed after being um, losing my sight and then starting to cook, I realized that, wow, I need to really call upon my, my, my taste, my taste, my touch, my hearing. And so when they come on the Zoom classes, I want to engage with them. I want them to engage with me. I don't want to lose anyone because no, no matter what your vision acuity is, I don't want to lose you. So I want to speak to that person that cannot see me. And by speaking to that person who cannot see me, along the way, there are those that are sitting in their Zoom rooms that are fully sighted. And there are some that has a visual, or we say sight impaired. So if I can talk to that one who can't see me, then the other other ones are just like catching gravy along the way. Hmm. So how I do it is by taking my time and explaining what I am doing because I don't want to lose. I want to engage everyone that's on that call. So that's how I do it. And that's how I've had to learn to do it. So I have had to learn or relearn many, many skills to keep me safe in the kitchen. Although I am a professional chef, I have had to learn blindness skills. Now that's something that really you have to to be taught the safety in the kitchen and different tools to use and different methods so now i am fierce in the kitchen mm-hmm. because not only do i have culinary skills but now i have blindness skills to be able to keep myself safe and then as i am teaching to keep my participants safe what uh, drew you into cooking in the first place in your earlier years when you were still sighted yeah. Yes. Well, I am the oldest of four children. And in the middle um, is my, are my brothers, my twin brothers, and then my younger sister. Um, my, one of my, the twin brothers, uh, one of them passed away. Um, we were, believe it or not, we're just 10 months apart. And so my mom always says she felt like she had triplets. So when he passed away, um, maybe he was like 14, I was 15. And I just came in as an older sister. I've always had that role. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was uncommon for me. I loved it. I loved stepping in and, and helping in whatever way I could. And so that's what happened. Uh, my mom was, was grieving. And, and, and as an older sibling, I was really sensitive to her. I love my mom. Oh, gosh with all my heart and to see her grieving in that, in that period of time, I just want to know how much more could I do? 
And so I would go grocery shopping. I cooked. If I didn't know how to cook something, I pulled the strengths from my both of my grandmothers who were amazing cooks on their own. Uh, one of my grandmothers, she was from Arkansas. The other one was from Louisiana. And we have amazing cuisine all the time. So I just kind of lived in my own Mecca hmm. of food world. And so that's what happened. Uh, so you went, you were classically trained, um, uh, did, uh, got a lot of extensive training, even with some very famous chefs, like I mentioned, Julia Child. That's very cool. Um, well into your adulthood, only just 10 years ago, you start to lose your eyesight. How quickly did that happen for you? Well, I started feeling the pain in my eye around 2011. Um, and then when I came back home from a trip, I went straight to the doctor. Um, it took a couple of weeks or, uh, for them to kind of figure out what was going on. Eventually, I went to UCLA, Jewel Stein Research Institute. And from the time that I felt that pain on my trip to the time they actually diagnosed me, I'm going to say that was not even a month or two, maybe two months. And, and your sight is completely gone? Do you have any, uh, any vision ability? I do. I do have um, some residual vision that is about, I'm going to say about 8% of my vision. Mm. Uh, I do not see depth or people's faces, uh, nor can I have a peripheral vision. My central field is sort of like looking through, say, 10 um, screen doors or screen, screen windows, if you will. That's probably the best that I could describe it for you um, as well on some days. It may look like I go outside and I just see like snow. So everything is white and very bright. So I am photophobic. Um, uh, the light, the sun, um, I can't really go outside when it's bright outside unless I have some amazing um eyewear, um, sunglasses and uh, to protect my eyes. That To have that happen so suddenly and so virtually completely, Regina Mitchell, just must have been so traumatic. What was the effect at the, at the time when you lost your sight? What, what were you thinking about your future, the, what your life was going to look like? You know, Julie, I didn't because it happened so fast. It's, it's like you're caught up in like this whirlwind and you can't really see anything other than the remedy or other than what's going on. So you just go from day to day, from doctor to doctor, and you just think, well, I don't want to lose what I have. And so, you know, I, to really be honest with you, I never really thought that things were slipping away from me because I have such a magnificent husband. It was as if I wasn't blind because he just, he just, undergirded me and not in a not in a weird kind of a overcompensating way but but a, a loving husband step up to the job type of a way mm. um it says for better or for worse through sickness and in health and that's what he did so i really didn't know <laughs> the severity of what i was going through mm. but, but what i did realize is that yes Yes, you are losing your sight. But you know what? I still want to be a wife. I still want to be a mom. And I still want to be a friend and a cousin and a daughter. I still want to maintain those relationships. And because now I can't work the job that I really love, well, what is it? That, what can I do? And I like to say that our days are packed with 1,000 amazing things. Take one of them and do it. And that's what I did. I thought, you know what? I made a promise to my husband that I want to go back and finish my undergrad. And you know what? Why not do it now? Hmm. But somebody didn't tell me, hey, wait a minute. You're a blind girl. You're a blind student. <laughs> you can't. I mean, this is going to be really difficult for you. Uh, I wasn't told. And I didn't think that you had to learn through some trial and error and some and some um, 
some failures, I imagine, that, that you'd have to learn yeah. these blind skills you were talking about, how to navigate the world in blindness. Yeah. And uh, and why was it so important for you? What was the effect for you of getting back into the kitchen and realizing, yeah, I'm going to have to learn some new skills, but I can still do this. I can still be a great chef. The kitchen is, we all have it. It's that it's that heartbeat of the, of our of our homes. The kitchen is where everyone gathers, and I mean, we, we're eating every day. We're cooking as much as we can, and it was just that. It's almost as if something died in the house. And although my husband was cooking, um, and he's an amazing, he's learned from me. He cooks amazingly. However. I needed to get back in there and I wanted him to taste my food again. And I wanted it back, Julie. I wanted my life back, but not only did I want it back, but I want it back richer and more fulfilling. And I knew I could do it because my husband calls me a converter. He says, Gina, which whatever life throws at you, when it tries to derail you, you take that and you convert it into victory, into triumph. And so that's what I did again. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to let this take over my life. I'm going to make this an ally. And so that's what I did. I stepped back in and I took my kitchen back. I reorganized everything. I took all the, the stuff out of my cabinets and I made it accessible for me. Because as a blind individual, moving and navigating in your kitchen, it's really important that you have things labeled, that you have it organized, that it's at reach, um, that everything stays sort of the way it is. And it's important for people who are in your space to recognize and respect that space and to keep things the way it is for you. And once I organize my kitchen, oh my goodness, it's much more easier, even for my husband, to cook in the kitchen now because everything has a place, a which lesson. we call mise en place. Mise en place. It's a lesson for all chefs, but uh, one of the first things you teach your classes on Zoom too. Regina Mitchell, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Regina Mitchell is a chef. She is an online cooking instructor with Blind Connect and an activist for disability rights and accessibility. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. It's good to have you with us today. Agriculture accounts for upwards of 20% of all the human-caused greenhouse gas emissions contributing to climate change. As we have discussed on this program, a lot of that comes from just turning over the soil and allowing stored CO2 to escape into the atmosphere. There's another, even more potent greenhouse gas coming from agricultural practices, and this one may surprise you. It's nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas. I'm joined now by Iowa State University ecology professor Stephen Hall, who's been studying nitrous oxide in agriculture. Professor, welcome. Hi, Julie. Great to be with you. Where is the nitrous oxide coming from on a farm? Sure. Well, it ultimately comes from the what we call reactive nitrogen that's that's present in the system, and that can come from fertilizer. It can come from the organic matter itself, and it's really produced mostly by uh, bacteria that that live in in the soil through their sort of their, their growth and and metabolic processes. Let's talk through this chain of events then that would result in nitrous oxide. What like gas seeping up from the the, the ground? Is that, I mean, Absolutely. It, yeah, it's you, just you sort of like... It. So, so, <laughs> and, I, and, and, and essentially, the, maybe the simplest way to think about it is that a small fraction of the nitrogen fertilizer that farmers are adding to their, to their soils mm-hmm. is ultimately transformed into this gas that escapes to the atmosphere and then uh, persists for, for a long, long time. I mean, once, once it's emitted, it's up, upwards of 100 years before that, that nitrous oxide is finally uh, destroyed up in the stratosphere, up in the highest reaches of, of our atmosphere. And sort of another knock-on effect is that when that nitrous oxide is ultimately destroyed, 
right, it also contributes to the destruction of the good ozone that actually protects us from uh, from from sunlight. So mm-hmm. sort of a, a double whammy, both in terms of climate change and in terms of uh, ozone destruction. Why do farmers farmers put nitrogen? on their crops? What is that supposed to accomplish? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, actually, perhaps one of the greatest scientific innovations, uh, perhaps ever, uh, definitely in the the 20th century, was the invention of synthetic uh, fertilizer production that really allowed us to dramatically boost agricultural productivity. Essentially, all crops require a a source of of nitrogen, and the synthetic fertilizer has really been critical. For For what? Crops use it for what? Food? Is it? Just to, yeah, to actually, to, for growth, essentially, all 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 plants need need nitrogen. Um, okay. Essentially, yeah, it's, it's it's a limiting nutrient. You've, you've got it. Okay, so it, it so so farmers put the nitrogen on to supplement what would what's maybe not in the soil. Uh, Absolutely, and okay. so so there is there is nitrogen in in soil organic matter, and 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 plants have have access to a portion of that nitrogen. But really, year over year, um, harvesting crops right would would deplete that that stored nitrogen. And so, so essentially, to get a you know a, a crop growth that's that, that's actually um, productive and sustainable, we we really need a a, a new source of, of fertilizer. And historically, there were there were other other uh, methods. Um, so le- legumes, and there there are other sort of naturally occurring um, sources of nitrogen. But um, over the last, you know, um, you know, since the 1950s, in, in particular, we've really relied on synthetic fertilizer for that for that source of nitrogen. A farmer will put down nit- uh, fertilizer with nitrogen in it. The plants will take up some of that, but Absolutely. it's it's the nitrogen, the leftover extras. Is that what you, becomes you the nitrous it. oxide? Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, the there's a inherent leakiness in 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 the way that we that we typically apply um, nitrogen. Unfortunately, you know, despite our best efforts um, in 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 agronomy, um, much of the nitrogen that, that's applied is not actually taken up by the plant, but instead is is lost in in various forms to the environment. And when one of those forms is is nitrous oxide, um, but but it doesn't just like naturally degrade from nitrogen into a nitrous oxide molecule. There's some, th- there's some yeah, in-between it's, it's, step? Yep. And that's, that's sort of the, the, the interesting and, and confounding uh, part is that it's, it's really sort of a, a sequence of microbial processes, um, diff- different microbial players that are, that are transforming that nitrogen. Um, and in some cases, they're, they're producing the, the nitrous oxide, which is, which is released to the atmosphere. Are we talking about bacteria or fungi? Yes, um, mostly bacteria, but f- uh, some fungi as well. And it's, and it's, it's really an area of active ongoing research. There are different kinds of, of, of bacteria that are, that are more or less um, important in, in producing nitrous oxide in okay. different kinds of environmental circumstances. Okay, yeah. but this, this would be some, so these are, these are microbes that, that exist in the soil. They would Absolutely. be doing this anyway yeah. with nitrogen. Absolutely. And, and what we've done is essentially we've, we've juiced the system. And so because our modern agriculture requires so much nitrogen, there's that much more nitrogen that's cycling through the system. Um, and even if a small fraction of that nitrogen is ultimately transformed to nitrous oxide by these microbial um, players, you know, that, that is, it ends up being a significant impact on our, on our global climate. And the nitrogen, the nitrous oxide, then is the, the microbe will eat, for lack of a better word, <laughs> the nitrogen, and then emit as its waste product nitrous oxide. Yes, and that, and this is where I, I don't want to get into too much um, details, but there are actually multiple sort of physiological processes that mm. can result in in the production of of nitrous oxide by by microbes, both sort of intentional and and unintentional. And yeah. but how much are we really talking here? I have I have yet to hear of farmers like walking through their fields and getting high on laughing yeah, gas. Absolutely. And so if we look at it as sort of a percentage of the nitrogen fertilizer that farmers would typically apply, typically this nitrous oxide that is emitted is only, you know, a few percent at most of that of that fertilizer. And so we're talking about, you know, small amounts of gas in any, you know, given point in time. And so if we look at the atmosphere of a, as a whole, nitrous oxide, you know, represents, you know, parts, part, a few hundred parts per billion, right? So this is a, you know, a minor gas in terms of the, of the, 
you know, the relative abundance in the atmosphere, but cumulatively it can have a very large effect because it's so, so potent as a greenhouse gas and because it has such a long lifetime in the atmosphere when it's emitted. More so than carbon dioxide? Absolutely. So on a, on a pound for pound basis, nitrous oxide is about 300 times more effective as a greenhouse gas. Um, the, uh, nitrous oxide is, is about 300 times more effective than is carbon dioxide. And so a, a, a small amount of nitrous oxide, uh, unfortunately, goes a long way in terms of um, exacerbating climate change. Is nitrous oxide worse than methane, which also is a byproduct of agriculture? Yeah, so, so it's it, you know on on a pound for pound basis, uh, nitrous oxide is more effective. But in terms of the total amount in the atmosphere, um, methane is still a, a greater contributor. So for sort of okay. ranking the sort of the, the total impact of these greenhouse gases, it's still overall CO two has been uh, most impactful, followed by methane, followed by nitrous oxide. But I guess the the kicker is that you know really moving towards um, sustainable um, agricultural systems really requires that we address this this problem of, of nitrous oxide emissions. Uh, okay, that's what I was trying to get to, Professor Hall. Fantastic. Why why yeah. on earth? I mean, if it's such a trace amount uh, coming out of agricultural practices, and if the benefits of nitrogen-based fertilizer are so clear, I mean, is this really a problem farmers need to be worried about at, at the expense Ab- potentially of their crop yeah. production? Well, it's it's really ultimately a, ultimately a trade-off, and I think there are there are ways to to balance right crop production and climate impacts. And we know in the long term that we're really going to have to get there if we as a society want to make headway on on climate change. As as you noted, you know at the top of the segment, the enormous you know leverage that that agriculture has on on our climate, and within that agricultural climate impact, you know the really important role that that nitrous oxide emissions. Um, Play and just sort of put put this in context. I know both in the in the popular media and the the scientific you know, circles, there's been so much attention focused on soil carbon um, sequestration, right? So trying to increase our our, our carbon in, in agricultural soils as a method to to combat climate change. But at the same time, what's what's really important to remember is that me, in many of these systems, the ongoing emissions of nitrous oxide year over year actually may outweigh the most optimistic, you know, increases in soil carbon that we mm. might realistically achieve by methods such as adopting cover crops or changing um, soil, soil tillage practices or, or the like. And so it's, it's, it's really key that if we want to make our agriculture more sustainable to, to, to get a better handle on these, on these nitrous oxide emissions. How would we do that? Where, yeah, where do we start? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, different uh, approaches that have been proposed. I guess sort of the, the cardinal rule that most scientists would agree on is that anything we can do to approve the efficiency of nitrogen uptake by crops is ultimately going to lead to lower nitrous oxide emissions down the road. And so there's, there's a lot of you know, p- potential you know, small gains that can be made simply by adjusting how uh, farmers add fertilizer and, and actually adjusting the fertilizer rates, right? If possible, decreasing the amounts that are, that are added and, and, and so forth. And I think that's you know, simply important. Imp- Proving fertilizer efficiency is sort of the low-hanging fruit. What does that, um, for, what does that mean? That there are certain times of the day yeah. or the year when crops <sighs> could like would be more hungry for nitrogen, and so absolutely, or... you've you've got it. And and so this sort of brings us back to economics, right? Where you're headed before it. You know what's what's in the in the producer's incentive to actually try to use nitrogen more more efficiently. And and at present, right? You know our you know. Pr- our conventional farmers are, are really under severe economic pressures in many cases, right? Trying to balance all of the factors they need to to make their operations um, profitable, and, and and unfortunately, that you know that sometimes comes at the expense of, of actually, you know, applying nitrogen in the most precise way, way possible. We still have, you know, in, in, in many cases, um, producers that will apply, you know, a large amount of nitrogen far in advance of when the crop can actually use it, mm. but for good reason, because, you know, perhaps nitrogen is, is, for, is cheaper um, in different times of year due to logistics of actually getting the nitrogen onto the field. So there's a lot of sort of countervailing pressures that, that influence um, 
you know, farm, farm practices, when, when we actually get out on the landscape and look at all of the trade-offs for time and money and environmental impact. And so it's not necessarily a simple equation. And so some, you know, strategy that, that you know, an academic might come up with to increase the efficiency of nitrogen use might be more difficult to actually implement in practice unless some incentives were available for that farmer to do so. And I think that's one encouraging sort of development, at least in the last few years, is, is actually moving to market-based approaches to encourage um, adoption of more efficient um, nitrogen use practices on, on farms. Now, nitrous oxide is uh, has no scent, right? It's virtually undetectable. Absolutely. Yeah. So how would a farmer even know if they had a nitrous oxide problem on their field? Well, they, they wouldn't, right? Unless, unless someone, you know, someone like, you know, a researcher came out there to actually measure it. But from first principles, we can we can do a lot to to predict sort of um, potential changes in in emissions, right? And so if we look at sort of you know back of the envelope, how much nitrogen fertilizer are you are, are you applying it? You know, how are you applying it? When are you applying it? Where where are you applying it? Um, even you know if, if we were you know able to tweak some of those. Um, attributes, we may, you know, be able to make headway at, at scale, you know, without having to necessarily measure it on, on each individual farm. Is there such a thing as a nitrous oxide detector, like the carbon monoxide alarm Ab- that I have absolutely. at my house? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and so we, you know, we, we use instruments to measure uh, nitrous oxide on a, on a routine basis. And, and my group and, and, and many other researchers uh, do, do this as well. So you just like you can just walk through the field and and pick it up. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, sort of the devil is in the details, and there's there's a bunch of different ways we can we can measure it, and that sort of brings us to another challenge: why maybe you know our understanding of nitrous oxide is really lagged be, uh, behind some of these other greenhouse gases. Is that actually the the emissions of nitrous oxide tend to be really um, variable, both over space, so within an agricultural field, and over time, and so it's still really really confounding our our you know basic understanding. Of, of the of the microbiology that's actually driving this this process, and it it makes these kind of you know scaling exercises. Where is the nitrous oxide actually coming from, and how much? Um, it, it makes addressing those questions um, trickier. But but yes, I think as as a field, we are sort of slowly getting better at this after you know working at it for for a couple of decades. Stephen Hall is a professor of ecology at Iowa State University. Thanks a lot for your time today. Oh, th- thanks so much, Julia. I really appreciate it. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us. Today's show was a selection of conversations from the Top of Mind archives, which go all the way back to the start of our program in 2015. You can find all of it on the free BYU Radio app, by the way. And connect with us on social media to let us know what you think. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.